Colossians chapter 3. Just by way of review, Colossians is one of the prison epistles that Paul wrote to the church at Colossae, and he wrote it in response to his friend Epaphras, who actually founded the church. And Colossae was a really solid church. I mean, they, they were solid in their doctrine, they were solid in their love and their unity. Uh, but Epaphras was just kind of getting out ahead of the time, so to speak. Colossae was a very wicked city, a lot of apostasy, and so he wanted to kind of head it off at the pass. And a couple of things that Paul really deals with specifically is legalism and mysticism. And those are both simply ways of adding to the gospel. One is a salvation by works, and the other one is a salvation through some type of emotional, mystical experience that uh, goes above and beyond how God has revealed Himself in Scripture. And in the first two chapters, Paul really reminds us of who we are in Christ and our great salvation and also who Christ is. I mean, some of the strongest language on the deity of Christ and the person of Christ is found in Colossians chapter 2. But then when you get to chapter 3, he shifts gears very similar to what we're looking at in the book of Ephesians on Wednesday nights. But uh, chapter 3 and verse 1, as I said for the last several weeks, this is that great transitional verse in this letter where he says, If you then be risen with Christ, seek those things which are above, where Christ sitteth on the right hand of God. And so essentially he's saying, All right, you know Christ, you love Christ, you really believe all these wonderful things about Christ, prove it. And he then begins to give a, a discourse on the resurrected life, which ironically happens when we, uh, are, when we die to ourselves, when we're crucified with Christ. We, we live the resurrected life by living the dead life, by living the crucified life. And in order to do that, in order to live the resurrected life, uh, by the grace of God, there's going to be some things that we have to put to death. And Paul gives a, a list here. We spent several weeks on this. Uh, but about mortifying the deeds of our flesh, he mentions sexual sin. He mentions our thought life. He mentions sins of the heart. He, and then last week we dealt with the, the sin in our speech and how our words, the, the speech that we use is really the aroma of our heart because whatever is in our heart is going to flow out of our mouth. And so he's... He's had a big list here of, of the don't do's or the thou shalt not's. But in the next few weeks, we're going to be looking at the do's or the thou shalt's. And, and let me say this at the onset. When I was growing up in church and I got saved at the age of 14, uh, the church I went to was very evangelistic, but uh, not, not very much so on doctrine. And for the longest time, I thought the only tenets of being a Christian was obviously be saved, don't drink, don't smoke, don't cuss. And I guess in Alabama you had to add don't chew and then go to church. And that was it. That was the list. That's what we heard over and over and over and over and over again. And I'm certainly not uh, knocking standards. I'm not uh, berating the fact that God definitely has some don't do's. We just have seen those in the past few weeks. But let me say this. If your Christian maturity is limited to the things that you don't do, <laughs> you've still got a long way to go. Uh, because not only will 
Our relationship with Christ calls us not to do certain things that maybe we used to do, but it ought to drive us to do things that we never would have done without Him. And that's really, to me, where the rubber meets the road. Because when I read about the things that Christ wants us to do, it's much more difficult than just checking boxes about the not-to-dos. We're getting really to the heart of the matter, and, and really... When we see the fact that when, when, when you're going to see this morning, when we read these things that Christ wants us to do, then we're going to see the fact that Christ not only tells us to do these things, but He's already shown us as an example of those things. We don't serve a God that, that abides by the motto of do as I say and not as I do. And that's so convicting to me. And the, I'll be honest, the, the more that I learn of Christ, the less I want to know about myself. And these are the things that really grieve me and burden me and make me me know that I have not arrived as a Christian. And so with that in mind, we'll begin in in verse 9, although the main focus is going to come from verse 12. Uh, Chapter 3 and verse 9 here in the book of Colossians, it says, Lie not one to another, seeing that you have put off the old man with his deeds and have put on the new man, which is renewed in knowledge after the image of him that created him, where there is neither neither Greek nor Jew, circumcision nor uncircumcision, barbarian, Scythian, bond nor free, but Christ is all and in all. Put on, therefore, as the elect of God, holy and beloved, bowels of mercies, kindness, humbleness of mind, meekness, long-suffering, forbearing one another, and forgiving one another. If any man have a quarrel against any, even as Christ forgave you, so also do ye. And above all these things, put on charity, which is the bond of perfectness, and let the peace of God rule in your hearts, to the which also you are called in one body, and be you thankful." Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with grace in your hearts to the Lord. And whatsoever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God and the Father by Him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we're thankful for Your Word and also the freedom to read your word and preach your word in public like this without fear of uh, any kind of persecution uh, that's definitely felt in other parts of the world. We're so thankful for the beautiful weather you've given us. And, uh, Lord, we laugh about the snow, Lord, but we're thankful for the water. Uh, Lord, we've needed it for a long time. Uh, Lord, I'm thankful for those that are here today. God, I'm thankful for those that are watching on the live stream. And God, I just pray that you would show us where we are as individuals, that you would uh, bring revival to our hearts. You would show us what's wrong, uh, God, so we, we could seek your face in order to get it right. I pray if somebody's lost and doesn't know Christ in the part of their sins, uh, that you would draw them into faith in Jesus today, Lord, that they would forsake all and follow him. I pray that you would be with those that are struggling, those that are going through trials and temptations, that you would encourage your people. Lord, just empty me of sin and self and fill me with your Holy Spirit. Just hide me behind uh, your word, Lord. And I pray that Christ and Christ alone would be seen and magnified. And it's in his name we pray these things. Amen.
I want to preach on the thought this morning of the resurrected life. We're probably going to do a, a two-part series on this, maybe three, but definitely two, on the resurrected life. I love what Paul says here about putting off the old man and putting on the new man. You know, it's almost like he just presupposes that we have an old man. And that old man, of course, is speaking of the sinful nature. It's almost like he just presupposes that it's something that is going to come naturally to us. It's something that we're all going to have to deal with and battle. And listen, understand, if you're saved today, you're indwelt by the Holy Spirit of God, but you still have this sinful flesh. We still have this sinful flesh that we, we battle with. We don't have to be a slave to it. We're not under the dominion of it, and yet there is a struggle there every single day to some degree until we get to, to heaven, and I'm thankful for that, that we won't struggle with that for all eternity. Um, but he just presupposes. Now remember, he's talking to Christians at Colossae. And he just presupposes that we're going to be struggling with that old man. Uh, there's a song uh, that I remember hearing growing up called The Old Man is Dead. And uh, I guess positionally that's true, but in practice it's not true at all. Uh, that old man is very much alive and well, and every time I think he's dead, uh, something happens, you know, a, a car pulls out in front of me or cuts me off or whatever, and that old man just sits up in the casket and waves at me, you know. And uh, y'all laugh because you know it's true. And uh, we, we do, and he just presupposes it. But not only that, he, he tells us to put off the old man, but then he tells us to put on the new man. This is something that we have to consciously do. It's not just something that, that just takes place by itself or through osmosis, or it just, boy, it'd be nice if it, just, if it just happened, you know. But it's something that even as Christians, we have to constantly seek. God. We, it's not something we can do by ourselves. We can't fight the flesh and the power of the flesh. We have to constantly depend on Christ for these things. But it's something that we have to consciously, every day, make an effort to do every day when we get up in the morning. Not only do we need to make sure we change into our work clothes or whatever we're doing that day, but we need to make sure that we are putting off the old man and putting on the new. And I, I love what Warren Wiersbe said. He said, we need to put off the grave clothes and put on the grace clothes. Every day we need to do this if we're going to live the resurrected life. And contrary to popular opinion, I know this is going to shock a lot of you, but the Lord commands us to be more like Him, not just to be our authentic self. Not just to be like us and make God conform to us. No, we're supposed to be conformed to the image and likeness of Christ. And so when we look at this resurrected life, uh, Paul says several things about it. In fact, uh, I'm only going to get through four of them today, if we're on time with that. But what are the distinguishing marks of the resurrected life? If we're making a list of what the resurrected life is supposed to look like and things that accompany that, what would they be? Well, the first one that we see in our text this morning is our identity. Our identity in Christ. Look at uh, chapter 3 and verse 12. He says, Put on therefore, as the elect of God, 
Hold in, beloved. Uh, and we'll just stop there because that really has to do with our identity. See, these are not things that we necessarily do. As Christians, this is who we are and what we are. And, and it's almost as if the Lord, one, for one last time before He sends us out in the world, He reminds us of who we are. And if you don't understand who you are in Christ, then you'll lack the motivation to live for Christ. You see, that's where I feel like so many churches and even so many pastors, I'm not throwing stones, I've not arrived in any way, shape, form, or fashion, as you all well know. But I think that where uh, the professing church has got it wrong, and perhaps even well-meaning people uh, have got it wrong or fallen short, is they have limited the gospel in the Christian life to a list of do's and don'ts. And that's great. We, we need guidelines. Yes, we have the Word of God that tells us how we should live our life, but that cannot be an end in of, it, of itself. Why would we ever want to do that? Why would we want to live for Christ? Why do I want to live different? Why not satisfy my desires and lust of my flesh? Why not go my own way, as the song says? Well, if you don't understand who you are in Christ, you won't have that motivation. That's why as a pastor, I know I do things differently than a lot of people I know. And I'm not saying it's better. I just think that it's best as far as the way that I do things. Uh, you know, as far as even things like being faithful to church. Listen, I want you here. It's an encouragement to me when you're here. Uh, it's an encouragement to the rest of the church when you're here. Uh, it doesn't matter how hard I study, how much I pray, uh, no matter how much I write out or type, no matter what I do, it doesn't matter. I cannot feed sheep when they're not here. It's just reality. But I'm not going to come to your door and do the police knock. And I mean, It might be fun, but I'm not going to get after you with a chair and a whip. Listen, I might can guilt trip you. I might can browbeat you. I might can persuade you to be here. Even when you really don't want to be here. And in some senses... That might be good, but ultimately, I don't just want you to be here physically. I want you to want to be here. I want you to want to go to outreach. I want you to want to share the gospel and to hand out tracts and to come sing the songs of Zion and all the things that we do. I want you to want those things. That, that's the hardest thing for me as a father, the, the line that I'm trying to walk and you know, even as a pastor, I, and you know, having kids, we've had that talk. Listen, um, you know, one of these days you're going to be up and you're going to be out of the house and you've got to make these decisions for yourself. And I don't want you to just do it because you think that's what mom and dad would want. Now listen, I would appreciate that, but the reason doesn't go high enough. I want them to do it because they love God and they want to serve God. And of their own volition, they choose to serve God. It, man, God is every bit as concerned about our motivation, as is our methods. And so we just have to ask ourselves, where's, where's our heart at? Well, if you don't understand your identity and who you are in Christ, you're going to lack that motivation. You cannot live the resurrected life if you're still dead in trespasses and sins, and I would add dead religion to that as well. Paul uses three terms here to describe the children of God. Elect, holy, and beloved. And we live in a society, this is so important, we live in a society where so many people are having an identity crisis. Uh, 
They don't know who they are. They don't even know what they are. And it's because we have, as a society, we have abandoned the Imago Dei. We have abandoned the fact that we are created in the image of God. We are image bearers of God. And when you get away from that, guess what you're left with? Brute beast. You know the difference between us and the animals? We were created in the image of God and they weren't. That's why we have morals and animals don't. We have a concept of justice and they don't. We understand right and wrong and they don't. We can think rationally and they're all instinct. When you leave that, you're left with sinful instinct. But when we understand who we are in Jesus Christ, if you're saved, it changes everything. Scripture makes it really simple, by the way, if you're wondering who you are, it really falls into one of two categories. Scripture makes it really clear. If you're without Christ, the Bible says you're lost. You're a sinner under the wrath of God. We're not all children of God. We don't have a a universal relationship with the Father. There's not a universal brotherhood. If you're lost, if you don't know Christ, it doesn't matter how good you think you are, how many works you've done, uh, whether or not you've joined a church, or been baptized, or whatever, the, whatever uh, boxes that you've checked off, none of that matters. If you've never come to a place and realized that you're a sinner, lost and undone, on your way to hell without Jesus Christ, and you need to repent and put your faith and trust in Him and His finished work on the cross, Salvation by grace through faith is the only way to heaven, period. You're either in that category, lost, or you're saved. You know Jesus Christ. You're a child of God. You're the bride of Christ. And so, for those that are in Christ, we know exactly who we are. And he uses three terms right here to tell us. Now, obviously, this is not exhaustive, but this is what he put in the text. The first one... He said, chosen by God, or uh, the elect of God. It's, and by the way, chosen by God, He didn't choose us because of anything good within us, not because of anything foreseen in us, any good choices, any good thing, but uh, purely by His grace He did that. Purely by His grace. Nothing we did to earn it or deserve it. Titus 2, verses 3 and 5. It says, not of righteousness, which we have done, but according to His mercy, He saved us. By the washing of regeneration and the renewing of the Holy Ghost. And so what what an amazing thought, to be chosen by God purely by His grace. But He also says of us that we're holy. Now to be holy means to be morally pure and blameless. We must understand that although we should strive to live a holy life, it's not an attempt to be holy, but because we are holy. Holiness is our position in Jesus Christ. Flip back to chapter 1 really quick. Chapter 1 and verse 20. It says, Having made peace through the blood of His cross, by Him to reconcile all things unto Himself, by Him I say whether there be things in earth or things in heaven, and you that were sometimes alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works, 
yet now hath he reconciled in the body of his flesh through death to present you holy and unblameable and unreprovable in his sight. So by the death of Christ, we are made in the sight of God. We are made holy and unblameable and unreprovable. Now let me ask you this. Has there ever been a time in your life in thought, word, and deed, and attitude, that you were perfectly unblameable, unreprovable, completely holy? Please don't raise your hand. Please. Please, I've changed the message, Ms. Messages, and y'all don't want that to happen. <laughs> so how can we be holy, unblameable, unreprovable, totally perfect in the sight of God through the death of Christ? That's it. And once we understand that that is our position in Christ, even on our bad days, then from that place we have the freedom to try to live for the Lord. Not to try to be holy, not to try to earn brownie points with God, but understanding that we're coming from a place of holiness. The Lord saved me in the summer of 1999. And from the moment of salvation, I had been perfectly holy, unblameable, unreprovable, positionally in Christ. Now that has not always played itself out in my life, but I'm so thankful that that's my position in Christ. That's what gives us the motivation. That's what gives us the confidence and the joy to live for God. Not to, not to just do it to try to avoid judgment or try to earn God's blessings. That's not a noble thing anyway. But because He has made us holy, we desire to live a holy life for Him. We can, when we understand this, we can stop trying so hard and simply trust more. And when we understand that we are already holy in Christ, it gives us motivation to live in accordance with our position. So he, he calls us chosen by God, or the elect of God. He calls us holy. And then He calls us beloved, or agape in the Greek. That is the strongest love there is. It's a sacrificial love, the love of God. Um, this is the love of God for His children. And one of the cornerstones of living the Christian life is realizing who you are in Christ. And Christian, I know I'm beating a dead horse here, but it will change your life if you wake up every morning and go to bed every night knowing that you were chosen by God, that you're holy in Christ, and that you're loved by God. If you really believe that, it changes everything. Identity in Christ is a hallmark of the resurrected life. So we see our identity is a mark of the resurrected life. But then number two, and this is where we kind of move away from who we are in Christ to our responsibility and the things we're supposed to do in Christ in order to live this resurrected life. But number two, a heart full of mercy. And I know I'm not alliterating, and I don't know if that speaks to the closeness of the end times, but this is just self-explanatory this morning. Not only our identity of Christ, but a heart full of mercy. Verse 12, put on therefore, as the elect of God, holy and beloved, bowels of mercy. Now, uh, the reason I say a heart full of mercy 
is because the Greeks, they, they used to talk about their emotions coming from their gut or the King James, the, the bowels. That's, you know, you ever heard somebody say, man, I just feel it in my gut. I got a gut feeling. That, that's basically what this term is talking about. But we understand it better in terms of our heart. And so we, we talk about a, a heart full of mercy. Um, it's the equivalent of saying our emotions come from a heart. And the word mercy, or mercies, speak of compassion towards others. And in a legal sense, it means that someone doesn't get what they deserve. Grace is when we get something that we don't deserve, the favor of God. Mercy is when we don't get something that we do deserve. And mercy is one of the chief attributes of God. If you were to do a word study on mercy, you would find countless times in the Bible where it's used of God. For sake of time, I just pick one that I've always loved, and that's Psalm 145 and verse 8. The Lord is gracious and full of compassion, slow to anger, and of great mercy. Does that speak of us today? Does that speak of you today? Full of compassion, slow to anger, and of great mercy? I believe that one of the greatest problems in the church today is that we lack mercy towards others. You know, we, we really do live in somewhat of a John Wayne society, don't we? I mean, we love stories and movies and shows where in the end, they get what was coming to them. They had it coming and they got it and man, it just makes for a great movie. I mean, listen, the bad guys never win in the movie. The bad guys never get away with it. Why? Because we like that. We want people to get what they deserve. But in the context of God, if we all got what we deserve, we'd all be in hell today. Because that's what we deserve. We, we've offended a holy God. We have sinned against God. We have broken His law and spit in His face and rebelled against Him. If we got what we deserve, we'd be in hell. And so if we really took that to heart and understood that, will we not have more mercy for other people? Listen, deep down, if we're honest, y'all might as well just say amen or get ready to groan real loud. But deep down, we want people to get what they deserve, especially if they have offended us. I got a few holy nods there. But listen, aren't you glad that the Lord is more merciful to us than many times we are to other people. He didn't give us what we deserve. And we ought to have a heart full of mercy for other people. Man, this is where the rubber meets the road. This is real Christianity here. When you don't want people to get what they deserve, even when they have offended you, and again, I just, I just think about Christ. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do even after he'd been beaten and whipped and had the hair ripped out of his face and a crown of thorn mashed upon his head and nails driven through his hands and his feet. Father, forgive them. Don't give them what they deserve. Do we have that attitude towards others? If you really want to live the resurrected life, if you really want to shine for Christ and make a difference, you're going to have to love the unlovable. You're going to have to forgive the unforgivable. And you're going to have to desire the best for others. Even your annoying neighbor, 
the coworker that is grumpy all the time, hopefully not, that's not you. But you're going to have to have a heart full of mercies. And I find it interesting here that the word is not mercy singular. It's mercies plural. And without going too deep into all this, just using some redneck knowledge and common sense here, it's more than singular. You know, if, if you've got a, a Twix bar, which if y'all got any of those, I, I like those, you know. If you have two of something, you should share it. But a Twix bar is just one. But Twix bars is plural. And that, that's a bigger blessing, isn't it? And so in, instead of saying mercy, it says mercies here, which means it should be more than just a one-time thing. It's plural. It ought to be more than just one, uh, one and done. It ought to be a lifestyle. And when I see this word mercies in the plural, it reminds me of that Old Testament passage in Lamentations. Uh, chapter 3, verses uh, 22 and 23 It says, it is of the Lord's mercies that we're not consumed. Because His compassions fail not, they are new every morning. Great is thy faithfulness. Listen, God's mercies are new every morning toward us, and our mercies ought to be new every morning towards everybody else. Can we stay? that we wake up every morning with a heart full of mercy towards those that are just, they just flat out get on our nerves. What about our own family? What about our spouse? What about our wife and kids? What about your husband? What about your co-workers or your church members? But listen, if it doesn't start at home, sometimes it's very difficult to work out for them. But sadly though, if I'm honest, I've been doing this long enough. I know as a pastor... So many times when I greet someone at the front door or, or, you know, hey, how are you doing? What do we do as good Baptists? I'm doing fine. I'm doing fine. Where in reality, you and your spouse were arguing the whole way down here. The kids were fighting one another at the back and throwing stuff and y'all had a wreck trying to get at them, you know. And, and, uh, but it's amazing. You walk through the doors of the church and it's just total transformation. How, how are you doing? Oh, I'm blessed and highly favored preacher. How does that work? Like from now on, like when you, when you have an argument with your spouse, your family, just walk through the doors of the church. Nobody even has to be here. Just walk through here and you walk. I mean, how does that work? It's because we're, we're, we're putting on a front, really. And what's so sad is I feel like so many times we can show compassion to others that are not even in our family more so than those we're close to. And I think it's because we, we take those for granted that are really close to us. We take them for granted. We're, we get used to them. And so we figure if there's anybody that I can vent or I can fly off the handle in front of or toward, it's them. That's not right. That's backward. That's not right. It's not right at all. This may be an area of our life where we need to put off the grave clothes and put on the grace clothes. A heart full of mercies is a hallmark of the resurrected life in Christ. I want to be more merciful, don't you? I don't, I don't want my kids to grow up and think, man, Daddy sure was a jerk for Jesus. That's not an office in the Bible. I'm just throwing that out there. I, I don't want to be like that. I struggle with that sometimes. That's why, you know, that's why I preach through books of the Bible. It makes me preach things that I kind of want, well, we can get to that later. 
The heart full of mercies is a part of the resurrected life. But then number three, I got, I got two more and I'm done. Kindness is an attribute of the resurrected life. Verse 12 again. Put on therefore as the elect of God, holy and beloved, bowels of mercies. And it says kindness. Now, you know, kindness is a word that is, is fairly difficult to define. And, and what I mean by that, it's, it's not that we can't understand the gist of what it means. It's just that it's very difficult uh, to decipher how it overlaps other things. You know, like, um, like love and gentleness and goodness. You know, where does one begin and the other end? It's kind of hard to decipher. But perhaps the best way to understand kindness, uh, kindness is a moral goodness that seeks the benefit and well-being of others. It, it's a moral goodness that seeks the benefit and well-being of others. And kindness is another attribute of Christ. We read this a few weeks ago in our Ephesians study on Wednesday nights, and that's Ephesians 2 and verse 7. That in the ages to come, He might show the exceeding riches of His grace in His kindness toward us through Christ Jesus. God is kind to us. Because of His moral excellence, He desires uh, the best for us. Now, I realize that the word kindness is technically more of an adjective. But practically speaking, it's really more like an action verb because as we just saw in the case of Christ, kindness is something that is shown. There's no such thing as invisible kindness. You can't just feel kindness in your heart. That's kind of cheap, isn't it? (laughs) Well, I just feel so much kindness toward them. What does that look like? What does kindness look like? It's not, it can't just be limited to a feeling. It's something that is shown. It's something that is done. And it's something that is, is expressed and it's seen. And as Christians, uh, kindness really ought to be a learned habit that we really look for ways that we can show kindness to others, starting with our family and working out from there. You know that God has placed people strategically in our lives so that we can practice the kindness of Christ toward them. I'm fixing to start meddling. And if I don't get some pretty hearty amens, we may back the mule up and drop the plow. And... I mean, really. If we can't show the kindness of Christ to the people that are closest to us, the world doesn't have a prayer, do they? I mean, what could, what could we offer a lost and dying world? I, wouldn't give, I would not give a wooden nickel for a pastor that treated his wife and kids like garbage. You know, I've said to some preachers, I wouldn't walk across the street to hear them. I would walk across the street to get away from somebody like that. I wouldn't care one thing about what you had to say about Jesus Christ or the gospel or the goodness of God or what have you if you treat your wife and kids like garbage. I wouldn't give two cents for that. Something's really messed up with that. And really, if it's not real, all it is is a performance. I don't care how powerful of a speaker. I don't, I don't care how clever a sermon crafter, how, how clever an outline. I don't care. It's messed up. It's backwards. And so we need to get these things right in our own life and family and Listen, you need to put into practice every day if there's nothing else you get from this. 
Are you on purpose going out of your way to show kindness to your family? Because, listen, that's something else we just we'll put on cruise control. I mean, we just tend to take for granted the concrete things in our life. We take care of the safe things. You know, in, in the years of counseling that I've done, I've never had a person come to me for desperate marriage counseling if they didn't feel like their relationship was in trouble. It's always the concrete things and the steady things that we take for granted. Why do we live our life like that? We're not promised tomorrow. We're not promised tomorrow with our loved ones. We're not promised one day with our loved ones. I read about, uh, it was either yesterday or the day before, there was, a, I think it was a two-year-old girl that got run over by excavating equipment in her own backyard here in Utah. I forget the town. Somebody was doing some work in the backyard. I don't know if it was her dad. I don't know if it was a company. Just like that. Just playing in her backyard. It probably should be the safest place in the world. She got run over by excavating equipment. Somebody didn't see her and backed over. And yet here we are bickering and fighting. And most of the time it's over nothing. And we're supposed to convince other people in our neighborhood, in our workplace, that we've got something better than they do. That we, hey, we know what true love is. We've got the doctrine. We, we've got the gospel. We've got the truth. And it's, it's so sad that I have met so many people. Listen, I've been one of these people. I, I can say this because I was one, and on days when the old man sits up and waves at me, I can still be one again. And that is that uh, I'm talking about people and, and preachers and churches. They might have the right doctrine, but they don't have the right spirit. It does so much damage to the cause of Christ. Listen, our belief ought to determine our behavior. Our doctrine ought to affect our demeanor. You say, well, Brother Brandon, I've got joy in Jesus. Well, sometimes your heart needs to notify your face. We need to show kindness to others. Christ was kind to us. And there's just, listen, we, we, can, we can break down the doctrines of the Bible to other people, and that's good. We can share the deep things of theology, and that's wonderful. I love theology. But if it comes from a, a heart that doesn't know how to show kindness to people, that's very problematic. I hope you understand that, that kindness is a language in and of itself. It communicates truth. Uh, I, I'm reading a, a book right now called Revival and Revivalism by Ian Murray. It's it's comparing and contrasting the first great awakening with the second great awakening. And I believe, I'm, all, I'm not even halfway through it. I think it. I think it should be required reading for all pastors and probably all Christians. But it said that at the time of the, great, the first great awakening, there was such a deadness here in what was America. It wasn't even officially colonized at the time. It certainly wasn't the United States. But... It was just a dead religion. You know, there was so much uh, organized, you know, Church of England and this and that. And just, it just so dry. It was so dried up. But what made a difference is when God began to move, when the Spirit of God began to move on the hearts of believers and even more so on the hearts of the pastors. It started with the pastors. 
And they began to preach as men who actually knew the God they were preaching about. They began to live a life that was so much different and so much more passionate than what they had seen to that point. That's really what convinced them that what they had was real and true. How does that manifest in our daily life? It ought to be a learned habit to look for ways, and I hope you look for ways to show kindness to your family and your co-workers and your neighbors. Go out of your way to find good things to do for them. In my own life, I can, I can be thankful, and, and Derek was all over this this morning. But the sovereignty of God in our suffering, if there is one definite thing I can be thankful for with Leah's condition, is it has forced me to look for ways to be kind. And what I mean by that is, is there are certain things that I can't do. I can't physically make her feel better. I can't, I can't change the situation. And so I've had to look for victories in the little things. I've had to look for the little kindnesses that make the big difference. Whether it's, hey, you want me to get a cup of coffee on the way home? That, that espresso kind of takes the edge off of it a little bit. and uh, you, you know, or, or even like yesterday. You know, she was pushing herself and trying to, to make lunch and everything. And, you know, she was sautéing some vegetables, and I could just tell she was struggling. And she kind of got to that point, and she got hot and everything. And I said, hey, why don't you, why don't you go sit down and I'll finish that. I just, I, it's just stirring vegetables, you know. But it was a big deal to her. And, you know, five, six years ago, I would have thought that was so stupid. That's not a big deal. It's not even worth thinking about. But I look for those things now. And I think we miss that. We live in a society where, I mean, it's all about the big things, the big churches, the big offerings, the big, you know, the big list of salvations or baptisms or, you know, the, the, the big job and the big house and the big money and the big car, and we're, we're missing out on those other things. And I tell you, if God really ever does judge this nation, and He's going to, I believe that's where we're going to have to find the victories again. Kindness is an attribute of the resurrected life. And all, listen, kindness is an attribute of the resurrected life because it's an attribute of the resurrected Christ. Lastly, and I'm done, another attribute of the resurrected life is humility of mind. He said, bowels of mercy, kindness, humbleness of mind. Now, Webster's defines Humility is, uh, in ethics, freedom from pride and arrogance, humbleness of mind, a modest estimate of one's own worth. In theology, humility consists in lowliness of mind, a deep sense of one's own unworthiness in the sight of God, self-abasement, penitence for sin, and submission to the divine will. Now, I want to say this. I mentioned this a few weeks ago, so I don't want to beat this horse too much, but... Uh, humility doesn't mean that you walk around just beating yourself up over everything. That, that's not what God wants. Humility has such a high view of God that you'll never have too high a view of yourself. And this is what I mentioned a few weeks ago. Uh, humility sees the blessings in our life as undeserved gifts from God. Pride sees the blessing in our life as a result of the works of our own hands. Humility said, wow, Look at what God did. 
Look what He's allowed me to enjoy. Look at the house that I live in. I'm so thankful for the nice, comfortable bed that I get to sleep in. I thank God for that AC that I can put it on hot or cold and get us, and all of God's children said. I'm so thankful for the winter that we've had and I, that I have a, a wood-burning stove in my basement. I thank God every time I put a log in there. Uh, I'm so thankful for the job that He's given me or the car or the spouse or the family. I mean, listen, every good and every perfect gift comes from above and, we, and humility says, wow, look at what God did. Thank you, Lord. I'm so undeserving. And we enjoy.